What have you given up on recently? Trying to exercise more? Keeping up with your book club? It's sad but true that when the going gets tough, sometimes we simply stop going. But that's not true of Dr. Curley most. This is Culturally Tuned. I'm David Young. And today we're going to hear how even a culture that feels incredibly familiar can have depth and complexities that will surprise you, even after a decade. And how we can overcome hurt feelings and navigate dangerous situations by staying engaged and persistent in new cultural surroundings. Our guest today is Dr. Curly Most, a psychotherapist practicing in Washington, D.C. Curly applies her many multicultural experiences when helping individuals, couples, families, and organizations navigate challenges. I'm Curly Most. I have spent 11 years in West Africa, Guinea. In West Africa, I met my husband. And because of love, I came to America. So that's the beginning. I'm from Brazil, from Sao Paulo. And as a Afro-Brazilian, connecting in Guinea, West Africa, where I spent 11 years at, was not very challenging because certain traits of the Guinean culture were very closely aligned to the Brazilian traits. And one of the most important traits of the Guinean culture is the trait of acknowledging presence. It's very impolite to walk in a room and not say hello, or when you're sharing public transportations, not to greet people. It's a way of life. If you're asking for directions, first you have to say hello. How are you? How's your family? Is everything okay? And then you ask for directions. So I thrived in Guinea. It was very close to the Brazilian culture. We don't do the same way, you know, but it's very close, acknowledging presence. Curly takes us to the marketplace in an isolated community in Guinea where she was trying to learn the local language. I was in Guinea, West Africa, developing some grassroots preschool projects. My desire was to develop the project and to support communities in French. But I quickly learned that to work with women and children, I had to learn the local language. So I had had some language training and I received authorization to study the local language for six months, and then I had it to an isolated community and decided to learn the Susu language. I study a schedule of eight hours, and early in the morning I would go to the market to sell rice with the rice vendors females just sitting around and be part of the, the life of the community. So I had my list, like, today I'm learning, my name is Carly, and it was too hard to say, so they gave me a name. I said, okay, ah, no, it's too hard. Your name is Yari, Yari Suma. So they gave me the name, Yari Suma. I got a name, and I sat there 
and I say, how do I say rice? And they would say, okay, you say rice this way. And, uh, and when I would repeat, you say rice this way, they would laugh so hard at me for what I had said. Just, <laughs> just lose it. And I said, did I say it correctly? <laughs> Again. And, uh, and I remember at first I laughed with the females, but then I, day after day, the same happened. The more I asked questions, when I repeated, the laughing would come. No matter where I was, what females I was talking to, the same thing. <laughs> After some weeks, I recall not wanting to go to the rice market, not wanting to leave at all. I got tired of being laughed at. It was hard, but I had the desire to learn. So, okay, here you go again. A little annoyed, I would say, hello, I'm learning this. How do I say this? And ready again for what came? <laughs> I overcome those feelings and those challenges. And later on, I learned that as a way to encourage people to learn fast, in that culture, when you're learning a new skill, people will laugh at you to encourage you to learn faster. So the females were really trying to encourage me to learn faster. My culture is different. <laughs> And I think they became the best cultural resource. I learned so much while I was sitting at the rice market, being laughed at. I wish I had understood, and I wish I knew the fact that people would laugh at you when <laughs> you're learning. That would have helped me a lot, but I didn't. So I had to deal with my heart a lot, be conscious and present for them. Besides, despite my desire to hide, because of being laughed at. In an unfamiliar cross-cultural setting, we sometimes get tripped up when we don't understand the cues that people use to express themselves, such as the laughter Curly experienced from the local women. Curly learned by sticking with it, by staying present and engaged. Next, Curly recounts a cultural misstep while visiting a family in mourning. I was in Guinea-Conakry, West Africa, developing grassroots projects, and uh, I decided to visit a neighbor who had lost a loved one. In Guinea, the tradition is that when you lose someone, you sit with the family. So they had chairs outside. I sat with the woman outside in the chairs and waited. So I sat in there, I think, for an hour or two, because in Guinea, it's very important for you not only to visit, but the time, amount of time you spend in there. So I'm sitting there with the woman, just listening to the stories, and suddenly I see a man that was very agitated, and he came towards me, and he was talking and in a loud voice, and he was wearing clothes of a spiritual leader. And he was very agitated, and I thought, wow, he must be mad about something. Something must not be okay. Uh, and he was coming to our direction and said, well, well, who did something here? And he kept on coming, and uh, I noticed that he was talking to me. 
and he was screaming at me. And he was, ah! and I was and, <laughs> why are you doing? Why are you doing that? And who do you think you are to do that? And I, I looked at him, and I had nothing to say. But my neighbors in- intervened for me, and they came in and they said some things to him. And uh, he stopped, looked at me, nodded, and walked away. And then I asked, what happened? And the woman, uh, he told me, well, he doesn't know you're a foreigner. Because I'm black. So I was just sitting there, and he thought I was part of the culture. And uh, it was very disrespectful of you to sit honoring the dead without a head cover. And he was telling you that you should have a head cover, but when he knew that you are not from here, he's like, okay, it's all right without that cover. And they said, and I explained to, to him that you're not, and you're fine. And I said, oh, I had no idea that females should uh, cover their heads. I really have no desire to, to disrespect your dad. Please give me a head cover. So she did, and I sat in there for some more hours with my head covered. That experience really shifted the perspective my neighbors had of me in the neighborhood. We were closer afterwards. I think they saw me as respectful and as aware of their own lives and and willing to do whatever it took to honor their realities. I'm a foreigner, so because of being a foreigner, I'm not constricted to the local rules. I'm okay, I don't need to cover my head. But for my neighbors, what I believe, they never told me explicitly. I know that something shifted. I think for my neighbors, the fact that as a foreigner who did not have to do it, I was willing to cover my head out of respect for their own faiths and beliefs that were not mine. So I think that that was what I imagine made a difference for them. When we are in an unfamiliar culture, there will always be something unexpected that we cannot prepare for. Even the most experienced global travelers cannot anticipate every scenario. Yet, we can almost always find ways to overcome a misstep and honor people, particularly as we become aware of what is expected and appropriate. Curly recounts an encounter in a moment of tension at a police checkpoint where a mistake was made. The dangers from the misstep were high. So... I was in Guinea, West Africa, and that was in the year 2000, and Guinea was going through a challenging political time, and the country had been surrounded by rebels from different West African countries. So political situation was shaky. I felt safe, I felt okay, and a friend of mine came to visit. She came to visit Conakry, and I hosted her, and one night we decided to go out for dinner. So here we go. We go out for dinner. We have delicious dinner. You're talking, and and when it's time to come home, 
I had this little voice telling me, did you ask her about her passport? And uh, I thought, oh, when we left home, I did not ask. But of course, we know that when we are in a foreign country, we should carry our documents at all times. So I put the voice down and kept on going for the evening, and then we decided to go home. We are driving home when there is a new checkpoint between the restaurant and my apartment. So the police stops us. Uh, and even before the police stopped us, I looked at her and I said, by the way, do you have your passport? And she looked at me and she said, I don't. I left at your house. <sighs> My heart pounded because we had heard, a week before I had heard that foreigners were experiencing a lot of challenges because of papers. Because rightly the government was concerned about having rebels in. So people had to prove that they were from the country they said they were. was very serious because my friend was a American in the nighttime sitting without her papers. As I said, a week before there was a big news about a group of foreigners that had really spent a night and a half in prison because of not having their papers, because they were perceived as disrespectful, because they were not honoring the laws of the country. So honoring the laws of Guinea was very important and people were afraid. There was fear in the air. So not being able to prove where you're from could involve getting in trouble. Going to prison or spending hours and hours and hours until some higher authority would allow us to go. We would maybe have to contact the embassy to let somebody know that we had forgotten the... So all the hassle. Like for me, when I heard that, my fear was like, oh no, that means that our evening is far from done. It's far from over. We're going to sit here for a long time. Here we go. The checkpoint is moving little by little, little by little, little by little. It's our time to be checked. And... The policeman looks at me and says, Madame Savard, I say, yeah, I'm well, how are you? How's your family? Papers. And I gave mine her papers. Um, she forgot her papers at home. Out of the car. That's what he said. Out of the car. And uh, she was starting to move. Something in me just said, no, like, just hold, hold. And I took a deep breath. And he said, her papers. And I told her to go out of the car. And he said, sir. And then I told Insusu, I looked at him, and I said, Insusu, uh, not looked at him in the eye, actually, just in his direction, looking down. I told him, Inga Kering, like a, a brother from the same mother. I said, uh, 
this woman is a foreigner in my home. I'm hosting her, so I'm responsible for her destiny. And uh, if she experiences shame or sadness while I'm caring for her, her shame and sadness and dishonor is going to be upon me. So I'm asking you, as the son from the same mother, to spare me of that. Uh, it was my fault that she did not have her papers. I just ask you to support me and save my honor, please. In West Africa, when you respect someone, you do not look at them in the eye. If a person has authority over you, you will not stare them directly in the eye. You will look down. And when you also call someone Inga Kerenyi, it means you're my brother. And you're not only my brother, but we are my brother from the same mother. Because of some families, they have, some husbands have many different wives. So you can have a brother from a different mother. So having a brother from the same mother is very important. So it's a way of saying, well, you're really close. I, I think I, I called his humanity and I respected him by saying, but not looking at him in the eye and asking for a favor. And he laughed and he said, Ikota, Ikota, Ikota. Ikota means like you are mischievous. <laughs> you're mischievous, you're mischievous. Oh my goodness, you're mischievous. I chose to tell this story because it really, it, it connects with what we have been talking about before. It's that when I was learning the language and, and sitting with people and trying to decipher so many things, I had no idea that I was learning those concepts also. The concept of uh, honor, the concept of having people and hosting people and being responsible for your guests, that as part of that culture, that is very important. The, the most horrible sin is to be mean to a person you're hosting. You offer the best to your visitors. So that came out of me. I, I didn't sit and kept thinking about it, but that was because it was part of the culture. All those times sitting around and just watching that seemed aimless. I end up learning that concept. Curly's years in West Africa teach us the value of not simply learning, but absorbing the norms of a culture in which we are working. We cannot dabble in cross-cultural knowledge or check out when it gets hard or we make a mistake. Over time and with repetition and guidance, we make sense of the cues, the body language, and the customs. We do it by staying present and engaged. Have you ever made a cultural faux pas? 
What did you do to recover from it? Are there ways in which you think you could become more present in another culture, as Curly urges us to do? Thanks for listening to this episode of Culturally Attuned. This has been a production by the United States Institute of Peace, with big thanks as always to our partner, Burning Man Project. If you like what you heard, be sure to tune in to more episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.